0: So, Andy, the guy who helped you walk through your, your body exercise last night, um, works at the Phoenix, Phoenix Counseling Collective, and he was telling me about this thing that he was creating. And if anyone knows Andy, Andy is one of those guys who goes, I think I want to do this, and then he just goes and does it. So I was like, oh, okay, he's probably going to get done. He's like, yeah, we're going to do this, like, small, like, uh, kind of conference with like some lay leaders, some pastors, maybe some counselors. And um, yeah, would you like to teach at one of these? I was like, sure. So like in my mind, I'm thinking like breakout session. I sit around with a few people and we talk, we have this conversation. I'm really good at talking with one person at a time. (laughs) But you put me in front of a large room of people. What that means is is that all of the energy on some levels comes from me, which I didn't realize until last night when I watched Kurt appear, talk, and I looked at the room and I went, "That's a big room." <laughs> that's a lot of people on the stage. I mean, I, in the in the audience, that's a big stage. And I noticed what was going on in my body. There was this rumbling in this region. There was some air that seemed to want to escape from my other, another region. It might have, but I'm not going to tell if it did. I noticed my limbs were just a little bit tingly. I couldn't sit, had to go stand in the back. That same energy woke me up at one o'clock this morning. (laughs) And I realized the talk I have, one, I don't really know it. And I think it might be crap. (laughs) So if this is crap, I am so sorry. I wrote it at one o'clock this morning. (laughs) So I am here to talk to you about anxiety and depression. And I am a professional. (laughs) I am the son of professionals who are brought to this country by professionals. And I think every single one of you is a professional as well. But we try to act like we, we aren't. I have clients come in to my office and they'll start saying things like, Yeah, so I just need you to help me figure out the tools so I don't feel so bad. Is essentially what they say. It's a a roundabout way of saying it. Some people just come out and say it. I appreciate their honesty. The problem is, is one, I'm not a miracle worker. And two, it is good that they're having these reactions. Because what it means is is that they're still alive. And so what I think needs to be said at the onset of this is that it is good that you are humans. In fact, it is the thumbprint of God himself that you are this way. God made man. In his image, he made them male and female. And so both hold the image of God. Which means that even your emotional state is part of your image bearing of God. I lost my place. So I'm going to get my paper so I know where I'm going now. <laughs> Remember, I wrote, I wrote this at 1. So, um, so When you have a child who experiences neglect, it is natural that he or she in their heart will be evoked to a place where they don't know if they can trust anyone. That is natural. That means that they're alive. The person who has experienced sexual trauma is afraid of intimacy. That's not something evil or wrong. It's not even sinful. They're just scared. It's a natural human reaction. So a lot of times when clients come in and start saying this, they say things like, I do, I need to be fixed. I need you to help me fix this. And so my, my normal reaction to that is kind of this playful laugh of like, well, what if you don't have to be fixed? oh no 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 Caleb you don't understand this is horrible no no while I understand that it is painful I don't know if it needs to be fixed because to fix it would mean that it would take away your ability to be a human and and instead what you would become would be some kind of machine which is not what God made you to be. So people that come into my office are actually running correctly because the harm that they received was not supposed to be. We get depressed and anxious because we're human not because something is wrong with us I've lived in Seattle, Washington. I've lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> but in St. Louis, Missouri, and in Seattle, Washington, there was there was a there was a type of culture there that when I was in St. Louis, I was in seminary. Had a lot of seminary friends. I have a bunch of weird friends or all therapists or pastors, pretty much the same thing. We're like this niche market of weird. But we're with each other and it's good. But in those arenas, there was this understanding that to go to counseling was an act of courage towards health. In Seattle, it was almost like, you know, you have your car payment, you have your mortgage, you have your counselor, every, I mean, it was like one in four, but like one therapist for every four people in Seattle. It's not the same here in Phoenix. You go to a counselor, something's really screwed up, and I'm using screwed up to be like, I'm on a stage, right? But what you're really thinking is, oh, it's that bad. Um, so I was going to go through all these uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, but I'm going to skip all those slides. So wait, you don't have to do anything back there. What I want to jump to, because Andy really wants me to be on time, I'm going to really push to make this on time, is that depression and anxiety, going back to what Kurt said, when you can't manage your anxiety, you become depressed. It's because they are opposite sides of the same coin, as it were. What they are, well, do you have that definition? Can you put that up? Oh, no, don't put that up because I changed it. Never mind. <laughs> I'll just tell you what it is and then we'll just, we'll just unpack it and we'll see what happens. And I'm going to try not to fall off this stage, which I almost felt like I just did. <laughs> so anxiety and depression are ailments of the soul and body as one existentially wars with despair. I'm going to say that one more time. Anxiety and depression are ailments of the soul and body as one existentially wars with despair. So, let me me unpack what I'm talking about when I talk about the soul. When I'm talking about the soul, um, I'm talking about this internal self. The Hebrews called it the heart. It's that Stuff. I had a therapy. I had a. One of my uh, professors in seminary would call it, you know, it's that stuff, that theological stuff. And it was like his word stuff. But so I thought it was helpful here. It's just stuff. It's like the emotions, it's the images of your story, it's your consciousness, it's your thoughts. It's this like internal guttural experience. And then the body, the external self. I think Kurt went through this really well last night. You are your body. We have bought into Greek philosophical thought that somehow there is this essence which is the soul that is encapsulated in this outside shell of a body. And that's not biblical at all. Think about death. What is death? Death is the unnatural rending, the tearing apart of the body and the soul from each other. To separate your body and soul requires violence. Do you understand why physical trauma is so impactful is because there is no separation, none. We are our bodies. Our body and our souls work together in such a fascinating way. I love this quote by Karen Moroda. She says, our minds do not cue us that we're feeling something. Our bodies do. Our minds inquire to the origin and the meanings of that feeling and help us to manage those feelings. But without the bodily sensations, there is no inquiry. There is this like symbiotic movement because it is one. So, despair. I think it has to do with us lacking the knowledge about whether we're going to live or die. You may think, Caleb, it's a little bit, you know, come on. You know, you're a therapist, you say things like too emotionally in charge and get over But think about how much death you just read about this week. Think about the experience you had at work this week where internally, if you're really honest with yourself, it cut really deeply. Look, we go through micro-deaths daily. And we try to act like we aren't. So the car crash, cancer, it ends life, right? So too does the unwanted touch of a teacher. Or the impact of your father's fist on your face, the rejection of a good friend, and the neglect of a mother. These also bring death to our soul. Because why? Because we're human. Which is the thumbprint of God. Which means, we go back to Genesis. And God looked at all of his creation and he said, it is good, very good. Thank you for the very. So, about two years ago, I learned about this thing called the sympathetic nervous system. And then every single one of my clients learned about it. My friends learned about it. (laughs) So the sympathetic nervous system is part of this thing called the autonomic nervous system, which runs things that are automatic, things that you're not thinking about, your blood pressure, your heart rate, breathing, yada, 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 yada. Now, the most kind of basic, at a basic level, we, our normal kind of way of being, where everything's kind of copacetic, moving along, is in our parasympathetic nervous system. And everything just kind of hums along. But, there's one, only one time that the sympathetic nervous system comes online, kind of like on your computer screen where you click out of one, you know, one box and this next program pops up. So it kind of pushes to the background. Sympathetic nervous system comes to the front one time, on only one occasion, when there's a perceived sense of threat or danger. If that happens, your body does some amazing things. Your Blood pressure shoots up, your heart rate goes up, you start getting sweaty palms because what you're doing is you are readying yourself for flight, fight, but if it gets overloaded, you're going to be paralyzed. And so, whenever we're at war, we have these spo- responses. It's this sense that we are in a pain that is unbearable and we must get out. That's where the warfare comes in. It is this experience of the pain that I experience in despair I is, un, is intolerable and I must get out. And that intolerable sense is what we usually avoid or attempt to master and control. So when I first started out as a clinician, I worked an eating disorder facility and I watched I watched my anorexic patients attempt to govern the amount of food that they took into their bodies as well as the number on a scale. And so they were anxious about all of these things, but it was all for the purpose of avoiding their own despair, their own sense of, I might die. And so if if, uh, there's a a writer who, um, who writes the book, Appetites, and she says, I focused, and it was about an eating disorder, she said, I focused on this one anxiety so that I could avoid all the anxieties around me. I didn't have to think about what it would be like to have a boyfriend. I didn't have to think about actually being involved in the relationships with my family. I didn't have to worry about a job. I didn't have to worry about so many other things. And so, even like the preoccupation of when anxiety, oftentimes what it does is it helps us avoid a host of other things that we're afraid of. All these other things that we're afraid that if I get into it, I might die. At one o'clock, I thought, if I get up there and I don't know what to say, I might die. it wasn't funny at one (laughs) so last night Kurt talked about story and how much it matters and I think that what often happens is that we have stories that we have promised to ourselves whether consciously or unconsciously I will never ever let that happen again and so what happens is is that in the present we spend our energy to make sure that something doesn't ever happen again when I was in seminary I was 22, just out of college. I'm glad I'm not there anymore, <laughs> but man, I took my first homiletics class. I was a communication studies major, and I thought, I've spoken before. I got this writing a sermon thing down, so. The night before I started, started writing. I want you to know I started writing this a long time ago. Just had to rewrite it. So the same, same thing didn't happen. But, but what I did is I stood up in front of my cohort. And I bombed. Not once, but twice. Like, that kind of thing where you're like, uh, uh, and like just reading stuff off the notes. And kind of going, I don't even know what I'm reading. So why did I wake up at one o'clock in the morning? Because I'm like, that can't happen again. And there's more people. (laughs) (laughs) We gave my daughter a bicycle with training wheels when she was two. Um... She learned to ride it pretty fast. A couple of days, she started riding it around the neighborhood, I, and I was just—I don't know—I was just this proud papa. I was like, "Yeah!" And she rode fast, and I was like, "She's she's so brave. It's awesome." Um, until about a week and a half later, when she had her first accident, that changed things. Then she needed mom and dad to like hold on when she got onto the bicycle. And she needed us to like walk alongside of her for like a week or so. And then if we got to that spot where she fell, we, we both had to like be there. Why? There's a theorist who says, we're, no one's afraid of something that hasn't already happened. She didn't have a model for how bad this could go when we get scared, when we get anxious, is because we usually have some model of how bad it can go, even if it's not just for us. Steve talked about secondary trauma. Even if it hasn't happened specifically to us, there is a sense, oh gosh, this could happen to me. So stop and think for just a second. Think about the United States of America 2018, I have two girls, and I'm scared to send them to school sometimes, right? Like, how many people died from the flu? Why? Why? It seems kind of out there. Well, how about our immune systems are down because we're in our sympathetic nervous system running around scared that we all might die. Like, that's what's going on around with all of us. Some people ask, okay, so what do you do again? And sometimes I go, I I don't know exactly what I do. (laughs) Because it's weird. People come in and tell me stories that they haven't even told their their spouse, their parents, their best friend. And it's an honor. I mean, I take it as a huge honor to be able to sit with them. But what I think that I do at this point, as, as far as I can understand, is I help people slow down enough to be present with themselves so that they know they can make it. I do this thing. I do this weird thing called EMDR. People are like, well, what is it? There's a lot of variables to it, but I think essentially what it does, it allows my client to be present with themselves, with me in the room, and they don't die. And they live through it. And they start realizing. I can actually experience this really intense painful emotion. I can step into my humanness and I won't die. So the antidote to despair is not to alleviate the symptoms. So I read my little, I don't know how this happened. It's my fault because I didn't catch it. But it, if you read the, the little details here, it says at the end, it's like, uh, the deep roots beneath the symptomology and how to practice being in the here and now with ourselves, others in God, can alleviate our depression about the past and our anxiety about the future. I'm sorry, I'm not here to tell you about that. Because it's not about alleviating symptoms. The antidote is not to alleviate the, the, the symptoms. We give medication because it does help take the edge off. That is necessary for some people, and it is good. But my goal is not just to alleviate symptoms. Because if I just do that, all I've done is make my patient better at avoiding their humanity. So the salve for despair is the ability to live in the unknown. See, if you're in the past, you know exactly what happened. And it will depress you. Because there is nothing you can do to change it. But what's interesting about depression is it is an avoidance of grief at times. Not all the time, but oftentimes it can be an avoidance of our grief, of our sorrow, of actually stepping into how that has impacted us today. But also we can be anxious about the future. We can make sure that we try to like manhandle that into place. And gosh, we can be in either one. And Right here, there's nobody. And that is safer. It's it's not enjoyable, but it is safer. Because it's not vulnerable. The thing about the present is you don't know what's going to happen next. Bessel van der Kolk, who's done a lot of research in, on trauma, worked with a lot of vets and those with, uh, with sexual um, trauma as well, writes this. Imagination gives us the opportunity to envision, to envision new possibilities. It is an essential launch pad for making our hopes come true. It fires creativity, relieves our boredom, alleviates our pain, enhances our pleasure, and enriches our most intimate relationships. When people are compulsively and constantly pulled back into the past to the last time they feel intense involvement and deep emotions, they suffer from a failure of imagination, a loss of mental flexibility. Without imagination, there is no hope, no chance to envision a better future, no place to go, no goal to reach. Oftentimes, in the present, we're actually living in the past because we're trying to keep it from happening again. And guess what? It's completely understandable that that's what we want to do. So if you hear me saying that, if you're doing this, something's wrong with you and you need to get your you-know-what together, please don't hear me say that. This is a really understandable way of trying to deal with pain and fear. It just doesn't work in the end. But it's something we all do. You remember, I'm the guy who got up at 1 o'clock this morning to write this. So, the other thing to realize is that when we look at like addictions when we look at eating disorders, when we look at kind of these painful ways that we try to avoid our story, our own selves, I think we need to realize that this is not necessarily a moral failure. I just wonder sometimes what it would be like in our churches if we realize that the guy looking at porn is just trying not to die. That the girl who just threw up is afraid of dying, even as they are both kind of killing themselves. It puts a different lens on it. We don't do very well telling people who are in their sympathetic nervous system Internally kind of freaking out. Stop! Sorry, didn't mean to scare you. (laughs) But that's what we do. That's what... I'm a preacher's kid. I got yelled at all the time. (laughs) But it was stop. Quit being bad. And that was it. I sat with a guy not too long ago who was talking to me about being in a strip club. And I said, oh, tell me about it. Where'd you go? He told me kind of sheepishly. I was like, so what happened? He kind of looked at me like, you want to know what happened? He's like, okay. So he starts telling me about this lap dance that he got. I said, if you're going to kind of tell me what was going on in you, and he was just sitting there and he went, you know what? I actually kind of leaned in towards her and she moved away. I was like, what did you want from her? And he was like, I just wanted to be close with somebody. But if I didn't ask that, if I didn't explore with him what was happening, he wouldn't know what was driving him in the first place. So this is why it's so important to know what's going on with our bodies, with our souls, to be asking each other, what's actually going on with you? What's happening? Like, What would it be like to tell someone, I just wanted to be close? So I want everyone to put your hand on your belly, top hand on your chest. I just want you to take some deep breaths. Just keep doing that while I read what I'm saying next. Just sit there with yourself for a little bit. Just keep doing it. I'm going to talk, but I want you to just keep holding that there. There's a scripture that reads, Be still and know that I am God. Now, before you jump to knowing that God is God, I want you to think about this. The word there is yada. Because It's also used in Genesis where Adam, Yadad, Eve, and Had, Cain. Knowing someone is not just an ascent. It is a wrestling to know. And takes time and energy and effort. And is not just gained in a moment can you let that be you don't have to you can take your hands off if you want so most people come into my office and say so like all right so this is like 60 minutes uh like how, ma- how many sessions do you think this is going to take I'm not a great businessman. I should probably just go, well, this is going to take 35 sessions, (laughs) plus another 100 if, you know, if you don't make it. But I I don't know. I never know. Because growth is over a long period of time. I often tell people, look, you're 35. You spent 35 years living this way. It's going to take some time to, like, undo the other thing is that it's it's, it's primarily relationship right that's what, we're, that's what we're healing and growing in ourselves is this ability to connect to ourself others and God and I don't know about you but I've been married almost 13 years I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of learning to do. But that's okay, because it just takes a long time. There's a. There was a writer after the San Bernardino shooting. He, he said, I don't know what to do with the fact that God is terrifyingly patient. And so what that also means. is that there is sorrow that will not be fixed tomorrow. This is the part about God I don't understand. But I will stay in the middle not knowing. We're all vulnerable. So how, how, do, we, how do we help Someone else. How, how do we step in? I think there's a couple of things. One, besides realizing that there's this long process of change, there's also this courageous curiosity. You're like, courageous curiosity. Nice alliteration, Caleb. Why? Why? It takes courage to step in to another person's anxiety and depression because to do so will invariably trigger your own. This is why we want to pray for everybody. Because what happens is in a situation that I don't know what's going on, this isn't always, but sometimes, I will say something to try and defuse it so I don't actually have to sit with the fact that I don't know why their five-year-old kid just died. There's this beautiful quote by this beautiful man named Cornel West. He got asked, this is in the 90s, things were, you know, didn't look too bad then. And he said, they got asked, are you optimistic about the future? And this is what he said. The categories of optimism and pessimism don't exist for me. I'm a blues man. A blues man is a prisoner of hope. And hope is qualitatively a different category than optimism. Optimism is a secular construct, a calculation of probability. Black folk in America, I've never had been, we've never been optimistic about the future. What have we had to be optimistic about? But we are people of hope. Hope wrestles with despair. But it doesn't generate optimism. It just generates this energy to be curious. To be courageous. To bear witness. To see what the end is going to be. There's no doubt about it. Uh, no, he said, I'm, I'm going to die full of hope. There's no doubt about that, because that's the choice I make. But at the same time, the end doesn't look good too, doesn't look good, doesn't look too good right now. What you're doing right now, it's called selah, or selah, silah. I'm not sure how the Hebrew is actually said but it's space. And when we allow for space, what we do is we invite God's presence. We invite our own presence and we invite the presence of another. And so it brings us to this open-armed stance of hospitality with one another. And so that we're able to go, you too, Yeah. I thought I was the only one. And so it goes back to Kurt's talking about community. And so what we say to one another is, I see you. Me too. Let's walk a little further and see what we shall find together. And there's a verse in Scripture that says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am as well. Amen.